Well, thank you, um, and, and thanks to Matt. You know, our church has been incredibly blessed by God with Matt's leadership. Uh, it, it's always amazing to me how, yeah, that's right, give Matt a hand. You know, Matt has this uncanny way of taking things that were part of old UBC and looking to the future of what new UBC is going to look like and blending those together and really honoring God in the worship and every Sunday morning, we know that we can come and we will meet God here. And part of the reason we meet God here is because Matt spends so much time being deliberately planning out these services um, so that we can have an encounter with God and be blessed and refreshed for the week. So Matt, thank you so much for what you've done for our church since you've been here. As Matt said, I'm a longtime member of UBC. About once or twice a year, um, Jeremiah asked me to preach. It's always a privilege. It always sneaks up on me. He usually, Jeremiah is very deliberate, just like Matt, and he usually gives me months and months of advance notice, and then about two weeks out, I say, when am I preaching again? Um, and this time, it was compounded by the fact that I had a vacation that ended about a week ago, um, and at the end of the vacation, I knew something was coming up. Um, and I remembered when I got back that it, it was this sermon. So I'm always, uh, um, I always feel kind of overwhelmed and, and underprepared, so I ask you to bear with me. Um, but, but I do think God has put some stuff on my heart um, this week, and I, and I kind of laugh at that. I've been, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, but I think God has put some stuff on my heart that, that can encourage you and bless you this morning. Um, I would just ask that you take it with a grain of salt. And remember, I, I'm a lawyer. Um, Jeremiah's the preacher, and he'll be back in a couple of weeks. So um, continue to pray for him. I heard from him um, just last night. He's enjoying being in the mountains, having some fresh air, some rest and relaxation. He would appreciate your prayers as he recharges and gets ready to lead us into the fall. So for today, what I want to talk about is time. I've been thinking a lot about time recently. Part of that is because, as I said, my job as a lawyer requires me to divide every part of my working day into one-tenths hours. When you bill by the hour, you tend to think often about how you spend that time. Another part of that is because I'm the father of three children who are sitting, at least two of them, up in the balcony this morning. They're between the ages of three and 12, and they have busy schedules with school, sports, church, and other activities that endlessly fill up me and my wife's calendars. And when you add Sarah and my responsibilities to that, you realize how little time you have left every day. And so you think about how you're going to spend your time. Another part of that, and a more serious part of that, is because I have friends and family members who are currently facing seriously or serious and life-threatening uh, illnesses. And when you begin contemplating the mortality of those you love as well as your own mortality, you tend to stop and think about how you spend your time. And if you think back when you're young, time seems like it's never going to run out, that it's going to be there forever. It seems like, at most, a trickle of a stream that is just flowing steadily and smoothly on, especially in times like this in summer. If you think back to your summers as a child, you thought they would never, ever end, and you never had to care about anything. Of course, when you get a little bit older, you notice that flow of time picking up a little bit faster. It starts to roll through high school and college and career and family. You can probably think back to a time when you thought 20 was old and 40 was ancient, but at some time, that time really begins to pick up. 
that sometimes it starts to flow more like a river. It begins to run so fast that you lose track of days and months and years. And when somebody asks you how old you are, you have to think, am I 41 or 42? You're never like that when you're a kid, right? You always remember exactly how old you are, exactly how many years you have to drive and to vote and to go to college. But when you're over 40, you start wondering, was last year 42? It's at that point that you start to believe in the truth of those old adages, right? Time flies, time marches on. And at some point in all of our lives, we realize that that clock keeps turning and that there's nothing we can do to stop it. We realize we don't have enough of it, and we begin desperate attempts to secure more time or to ensure that the time we have left is not wasted. We all feel that heavy weight of time, whether it's because we think we're wasting ours or that ours or those that we love is running out, but we all eventually start realizing that we're in a battle with time and that it's a losing battle. It's a reminder of our mortality, right, that at some unknown time in our future, time is just going to run out for us, that that last grain of sand is finally going to drop through the hourglass and that there is nothing we can do to stop it. Psychologists call that time when we first realize that truth a midlife crisis. In 1965, psychologists started using this term to describe the time when adults reckon with their own mortality and their sense of a dwindling number of remaining years of productive life. So we all think of Chevy Chase in the National Lampoon movies or, or any other character who's going through a midlife crisis. You end up with a shiny sports car, a country club, a membership you can't afford, a new wife, plastic surgery, whatever you want to do. Those are all human ways of battling with the sense of our own mortality and the dwindling number of years that we have in our life. Symptoms of midlife crisis, according to psychologists, include discontentment with life, a feeling of restlessness, a questioning of decisions, a questioning of the meaning of life, a questioning of the purpose of life, irritability, persistent sadness, and an increase in compulsive and sometimes self-destructive behaviors. And studies show that all of us will go through some sort of midlife crisis at some point in our life. And the average age of a man going through one is 43. And the average age of a woman going one going through one is 44, but that can vary um, a lot. And once you're in one, they often last for years and years and years. And so I want to talk today about a, a man who I believe was going through a midlife crisis. Um, today's passage comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an ancient book of wisdom, which I believe was written by a man who was undergoing a classic midlife crisis. And that man, according to tradition and clues from the text was King Solomon, the son of King David, and one of the most successful kings in all of Israel. And let me tell you a little bit about who King Solomon was. He was responsible for expanding ancient Israel's borders to their furthest extent. He was responsible for centralizing strong administrative power in the political capital of Jerusalem. He was responsible for ushering in a period of peace and prosperity that Israel rarely, if ever, saw again in her history. 
He created a series of political alliances throughout the ancient world that made this little tiny state, this little tiny country about the size of the state of New Jersey, one of the most important and wealthiest of the time. He built the temple in Jerusalem that served as the focal point for the worship of God for nearly a thousand years. He wrote beautiful songs and poems and was considered one of the wisest people to ever live. Everything this man, King Solomon, did seemed to be a success. He was an overwhelming success. But at some point in his life, despite all of those successes, which from an outside perspective would make him look like a very successful man, and just like every adult in this room, King Solomon began to grapple with his own mortality, and he began to grapple with the meaning of life and his own existence. He began to question the value of work, of pleasure, of wisdom, of wealth, in the light of the fact that everyone's time eventually runs out. At one point in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is so despondent about the human condition that he wonders if it would have been better to not survive birth rather than to live and to have to face the pains associated with life and his own mortality. The book of Ecclesiastes records King Solomon's reflections during this crisis. This book is not really a book of comfort. King Solomon does not come to any easy answers about our predicament. It's clear from reading the entire book that he is still working things out. He has no perfect answer for how we should handle the common feeling of futility or lack of meaning or lack of purpose or fear of death. It appears, unfortunately, that even one of the wisest people that ever lived on this earth could not completely figure out how to address this issue. But in chapter 3, verse 11, which is the only verse we're going to look at today, I think King Solomon provides those of us who are going through our own midlife or other crisis some truths about God to cling to that give us encouragement, hope, and purpose as we grapple with the meaning of life and the reality of death. So I'll ask you to turn to chapter 3, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. This is what King Solomon says to us. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And since it's so short, I'll read it one more time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I believe that this verse, especially when seen through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, offers hope, encouragement, and comfort to those of us who are facing the raging river of time and of our own mortality. So let's look at the two things. First, King Solomon tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. This is a statement about the providence and sovereignty of God. Not only is He the creator of all things, He is working all things out for the benefit of His creation, and He is in control of the working out. This truth, however, is full of tension, tension that is very characteristic of our human understanding of God. On one hand, 
God as creator of everything is in control and is working all things out in a beautiful way for the benefit of himself and his people. At a big picture level, of course, this is a word of comfort. We can take comfort in the fact that the all-powerful creator of the universe has a plan, that he is in control, and that the beauty of that plan is ultimately going to be revealed to us and benefit us at a more personal level. However, this truth is hard, and the hard part has to do with time, right? Those three little words, or big words, in its time cause all sorts of problems for us. For instance, try telling the parents of a sick child that God is in control and that his timing is perfect. Tell the cancer patient that everything works according to God's plan. Or tell the just laid off provider for a young family that God's timing is perfect. And therein lies the tension with this verse. The phrase, in its time, is so difficult because it requires both patience with God and trust in God, two things that are in short supply when life is hard. Like Matt just said, everyone is going through a season. And some of those seasons are difficult seasons. And in those difficult seasons, it is hard, if not impossible, to see the beauty of God's plan and the beauty of God's timing. In those seasons, we tend to see the brokenness of this earth and the pain that that causes in our lives. Whether it be sickness, death, injustice, poverty, addiction, a sense of loss of purpose, a sense of loss of meaning, or any other countless thing you could describe, the fact is that each of us humans will experience that brokenness, which serves to remind us that we are no longer in perfect communion with God in the Garden of Eden. Something has been lost. And in those seasons when God's timing and plan seem so far away, it is easy to be impatient, right? Impatient with life, impatient with our circumstances, impatient with our friends and family, and impatient with God. Those seasons can make us angry with God and can drive us away from Him and towards temporary relief, which often manifests itself in that compulsive and destructive behavior that are so symptomatic of people in the midst of crisis. If God can't help me, or if God is not helping me fast enough, we say, I will do whatever it takes to help myself. And that often leads us down the road to perdition. But the truth that King Solomon is telling us is that God is working all things out in a beautiful manner in his time. And that should provide us comfort that when we are in the midst of a difficult season, that season will pass. For some of us, that season will pass on this side of eternity. And we will be able to look back at the end of our life at how our story fit into God's beautiful plan and praise Him for that. For others of us, that season might not pass until we are on the other side of eternity. And only then will we be able to see how it all beautifully fit together for God's purposes. This truth compels us to cling to God, especially in difficult seasons, to refuse to give in to destructive behaviors, to refuse to turn away from God, to refuse to let our hearts be hardened, and to refuse to stop seeking out the beautiful things that God has put in our life, 
even in the midst of difficult times. Think of the beauty of a friend who provides an encouraging word or a warm meal in a time of need. Think of the beauty of a loving spouse who provides comfort when you lose your job or when all seems lost. Think of the beauty of God's creation that is all around us and inspires us to remember what our God can do and what He has done. Think of the beauty of those who help, who are sent to us by God in the midst of difficult times. In the midst of crisis, seek out the beautiful things of God. They are there. They are always there. They are all around you at all times. This truth calls us to be patient, to do the impossible, to put somebody else's plan before our plan, to put God's plan before our plan, to wait upon the Lord and trust that He is good, to put our trust in our Creator that He is making a way for us. And not just any way, but a beautiful way. That our Creator is walking with us on that way during the difficult times, that He hurts when we hurt, that He weeps when we weep, that He feels our pain when we cry out to Him, and He hears our cry just like He heard the Israelites crying out from their bondage in Egypt. And not just that He hears our cry, but that He answers us and He sends help. Because the very nature of the God that you and I worship is that of a Savior. He is a saving God. He is a rescuer. He is jealous and compassionate for you and for me, and He will help. In the midst of those times, in the midst of that crisis, when you cannot feel God's presence, when you cannot sense His plan in your life, when God's time does not seem to match up with your time, when you lose a sense of the beauty and wonder of God, be patient. Cling to Him. Cling to His promises. Seek out the beautiful things and cry out to Him for help. He is with you. He hears you. And He will save you. The second truth that King Solomon tells us is that God has set eternity in our hearts. God has set eternity in our hearts. This truth, like the first one, is also fraught with some tension. King Solomon tells us that God has put a longing for eternity within our hearts, but he also says that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even unto the end. In other words, God will give us a longing to understand His eternal plan, but He won't reveal it all to us. We just can't get it all as humans. But I think that the truth that God has set eternity in our hearts is one of the most profound truths of the book of Ecclesiastes and maybe the entire Bible. And it has provided me a great understanding and comfort as I address what I sense to be my own midlife crisis. My own grappling with why we're here, why were we put on this earth, what is the meaning of life? My midlife crisis has um, revealed itself with some weird things. I've, I've lost some weight, which I think that's kind of typical of a midlife crisis. I've, uh, I've, I've become um, interested in baking, which I've never been interested in baking in my whole life. And now I want to go to the kitchen and be left alone and create something. I know it's very odd. 
And, and it's also led to an interest in, in hiking and being outside in God's um, creation. But it's also come accompanied with, um, with sickness in my family, with um, issues with my career, with all sorts of things that everybody grapples with, um, a lot of which comes down to, why am I on this earth? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? And I feel longings to do things, to, to change the world, to be a better person. And I think those longings come from the fact that God has set eternity in our heart. And I realize now, as those around me have gotten ill and, and we've faced some health concerns in our family, that, that God has given us a limited amount of time to do things. And I think all of us, as we reach that point, we start feeling longings to do something that makes a difference for God. Think about what Solomon is saying. God has put within all of our hearts a longing for eternity, for eternal things, for divine things, for permanent things. A longing to understand what life is all about, what God's purposes are, why we were put on this planet, how our purpose fits into God's beautiful plan. In some sense, this longing for eternity is connected to what was lost in the Garden of Eden a longing to rich communion with God in a world where brokenness does not exist, a longing to return home, to return to that perfect paradise made just for us by our Creator. Brokenness reminds us that something is not right in the world. It stirs up faint and distant memories within each of us of what life was once like and will be again. Our very DNA as humans and image bearers of God cries out, for the brokenness to end, for things to be made right, for reconciliation with God to occur, something deep and elemental within all of us, placed there by God, longs for God's beautiful plan to be finished. There is something within each of us that desires more than anything else perfect communion with God and a return to the garden. We want the, the earth to be as God intended it to be, as God created it to be, a paradise where people who bear his image treat each other justly, fairly, kindly, with mercy, where God's love flows through and out of each and every one of us, and where there is no brokenness, no sin, no separation from each other or from God. That is the divine longing that God has put within each of his image bearers. So I think those longings we feel as we start to grapple with the meaning of life are put there in a, inside of us by God. So listen, when you hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness on this earth, you are feeling that longing for eternity. When you feel a strong desire to advocate and help widows, orphans, the poor, the hungry, prisoners, immigrants, refugees, victims of sex trafficking, victims of exploitation, the marginalized, the powerless, you are feeling that longing for eternity. When you feel a new desire to go to Buckner foster care training or to volunteer with the Presbyterian Night Shelter, that longing for action, or to start giving sacrificially to your local church, you are feeling that longing for eternity. When you recoil at racism, misogyny, homophobia, xenophobia, greed, hatred, you are feeling that longing for eternity. 
when you desire to restore relationships, to make smooth the rough places, to be a bridge builder, you are feeling that longing for eternity. When you desire to protect this planet and to get out and enjoy God's creation, which is a remnant of that lost Garden of Eden, you are feeling that longing for eternity. And the question becomes, of course, what do you do with those longings? The world might tell you to ignore them because they don't typically line up with the keys to success in 21st century America. Pursuing those longings would not lead to wealth, fame, stability, power, or any of the other things that we seem to measure our success by here. But God has put those longings in your heart. Every feeling you have to address the brokenness in this world, to restore relationships between you and others and you and God is a divine longing placed in your heart by God that should not be ignored. So my challenge for you today is to act on it. Take a chance. Trust that God has placed those feelings within you and find a way to act on them. Find ways to address the brokenness in this world. That is what God wants you to do with your remaining time. That is what he has put us on this earth to do. That is how he is working out his beautiful plan in its time. I believe these longings increase as we get older and become more attached to the world and more dependent upon it. Work out your crisis by connecting with these longings and becoming a part of God's plan. We, of course, have the benefit of knowing more about God's beautiful plan than King Solomon did. While the world expected God to come as a powerful, strong, victorious king who would defeat all of his enemies through political power and military strength, God instead took on the form of a simple carpenter from a little off-the-map town far away from the religious and political power centers. He gave up his place in heaven as creator of the universe to become a human who could die just like you and me on earth. And that human, don't ever forget, his name was Jesus, lived a life full of crisis. He was born, as we know, in questionable circumstances to an unwed teen mother with no apparent father. He had to become a refugee as a child because the political powers wanted him dead. He suffered rejection and ridicule, ridicule from his hometown and from those who knew him best. He experienced the loss of his best friend from disease. He was unjustly accused of a crime. He was unjustly sentenced to death, and he was executed, dying the worst death you could imagine. All in all, he was a complete and total failure when measured by the world's standards. We know that he questioned his purpose, right? Because the night before his arrest, he prayed to his father. He prayed to God, please let there be another way. He knew what was in front of him. But Jesus also knew his purpose, and he knew the meaning of his life and the meaning of his death. He knew that his death would serve as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and would begin the process of restoring the world and repairing the brokenness between God and man. He knew that his resurrection was the most beautiful part of God's plan and would provide hope to all who placed their faith in his death and resurrection that one day we would have the chance to experience again the perfect communion with God in paradise. 
The fact that God became man and experienced what it means to be human, including sadness, fear, and depression, should provide us comfort in the midst of our own crises. Jesus knows what we are going through because he went through it himself. In the midst of your dark seasons, of your crises, of your sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness, Jesus is there with you. He is with the family in the hospital room with that sick child. He is with the cancer patient in that doctor's office hearing the difficult news. He is with the worker in his boss's office receiving his pink slip. He knows exactly how those people feel because he had been there before. And he wants you, everyone here, to be a part of the plan to restore his father's creation. He wants you to act on those divine longings to repair the brokenness in the world and to reconcile the broken relationship between human and God. All you have to do is trust him and follow his lead. He will use you as an integral part of the beautiful working out of God's plan for this world. So to those of us who are in the midst of a crisis, midlife or otherwise, and who are struggling to know what to do with their remaining time, and how to handle their own mortality, the answer is simple. Turn to Jesus. Put your life in his hands and ask for his direction. Cry out to him for help. Pray continually. Ask him to burden your heart with eternal longings. Be sensitive to what he burdens your heart with and act when he does. Focus on the permanent and not the temporary, the eternal and not the fleeting. That is what God is calling us to do. If you live your life this way, continually seeking and open to being a part of God's beautiful plan, you will find your purpose, you will find your meaning, and you will find contentment with life. God does not promise that life will necessarily be easy, we will still face brokenness in this world until Jesus returns. And God has told us that those of us who cling tight to him will face difficulties. But Jesus, our advocate, will be with us shouldering the burden, and he promises that his burden is easy and his burden is light. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have a plan for our lives. We thank you that you are in control of our lives, and we thank you most of all that you sent Jesus, your son, to die so that we can have a restored relationship with you. I pray, God, that you will put in the heart of every member of this congregation and every guest that is with us today a divine longing to heal the brokenness of this world to reject what this world has to offer and to look to you, to embrace permanent things, eternal things, divine things, and to look for ways to work those things out in this world. Thank you for sending us Jesus to die for us. It is in your name I pray. Amen.